Now, for the show that brings combat sports stories to life from the great state of Ohio, this is Forged in Ohio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Forged in Ohio. My name is Jake Murrin, and I'm the host of this podcast. I have a very special edition of Forged in Ohio today. In this podcast, you know, it's all about welcoming sports athletes on and letting them tell their stories and wild experiences, right? So I've primarily stuck to MMA and the disciplines that go into it, but I couldn't be happier to welcome the first professional wrestler on the program. He has ties into mixed martial arts as well, but I'm a huge professional wrestling fan, so I'm excited to talk primarily about that. Coming on to Forge in Ohio is Dominic Garini. Welcome to the show, Dominic. Hey, thanks for having me, Jake. The pleasure is all mine. I've been excited to talk to you ever since uh, Chad Kuhn of East Coast Martial Arts put us together. And that's kind of where I want to start here. Uh, Let's start with how you started your journey in combat sports, which was actually through Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. What first inspired you to get into that discipline? Yeah, so uh, true story. Uh, Originally, my story comes full circle. Originally, I was going to be a professional wrestler. Pro wrestling was like one of my first loves as a kid. Uh, my mom bought me a Hulk Hogan VHS from Eagle Video when I was a little kid. I wore that out. I actually bought the same copy of the VHS that I, I keep on my video rack just as kind of a thing now. Um, I wore that out. And when I was about 15 years old, you know, I made the decision I was going to be a professional wrestler. Through that time, um, when I turned 16, you know, high school came around and pro wrestling at that time was like not as cool anymore. So I kind of delved into starting amateur wrestling and through amateur wrestling, I found mixed martial arts through mixed martial arts. Then I thought, what's the easiest way to get into training this? Um, at the time I had a friend named Alex Poinar who introduced me to East coast martial arts. And about 2009, I started my jujitsu journey. Um, first is because I thought I was like, oh, this is the easiest way to get in MMA through kind of, uh, hanging out with Chad and, and you know, studying the art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I was like, oh, I kind of like this more than the idea of getting punched in the face though. And I've, I've had manager and instructor Chad Kuhn on the show and we talked about the, the gym and atmosphere at East coast extensively. What's been your experience like with East coast so far? Oh man. So, uh, it's what 2013 now, right? Or 2023 now. Yep. So I've been there since 2009. Um, I, I always reference this to Chad. You know, when I started at East Coast 2009, we had one night of gi that Chad had to beg for. And then we had one night of no gi that was usually a bunch of muscled up monsters uh, just beating the tar out of you. Um, and even through that time, you know, Chad was always such a welcoming individual at the time, you know, before he passed away, uh, Mr. Steve Hyman, you know, they were just so into the idea of the art. And I think that's what kind of made the difference. And, you know, just the care about everybody, the big family atmosphere that, you know, we've developed there. It's a big thing. And I think that that's what sets us apart and what kind of brings us all together. You know, it's always been a big thing. Um, We support each other in all that we do. Yeah, and it's incredible that you jumped on East Coast as early as you did, and now you've come full circle with East Coast, seeing where it is now. Do you and, and Chad back then know that that was the possibility of East Coast, and you knew that that was the atmosphere that you guys were building together? Um, I think that we always believed in the vision that Mr. Hyman had for the gym, which was always that it could be that. Um, I think Chad and I always had had a bigger view of jiu-jitsu, uh, namely Chad. 
you know, Mr. Hyman, you know, came from more traditional martial arts backgrounds. And I, I think he saw how useful jiu-jitsu was, but never saw it growing to the level that it grew to, which has, you know, the gym itself has grown to an, an entirely new level. Our jiu-jitsu program has as well. Like I said, when I started, it was two nights a week and one night was gi. And now you have, you know, five days a week that you can go train multiple times on Mondays and Wednesdays. So it, it, it was something we always knew because back when I was competing so much in jiu-jitsu, I always tried to get day classes going. When I was a college student, I didn't have as much going on and I didn't have the fiscal responsibilities that come with adulthood. Um, you know, I was always trying to get day classes going. It was something that at the time I don't think the community was ready for and maybe it wasn't marketed right. But, you know, through Chad's hard work and dedication with the gym, you know, he's found ways to market, you know, like I said, five, six jiu-jitsu classes a week on top of all of the, you know, great martial arts that East Coast has been providing for over 20 years. Right. And for you, I believe you just got your brown belt in BJJ. So congratulations on that accomplishment. Uh, thank you. Uh, what was thank the highest you. level of Brazilian jiu-jitsu that you competed at? Uh, so I, I competed when I got my purple belt. I, I got my purple belt right as I was transitioning into becoming a professional wrestler. But last or June of 2021, just out of, out of on a whim, decided to do a grappling industry as that purple belt. And that was my first purple belt tournament. And I hadn't competed in five, six years, and I ended up getting second. So purple will be the highest level that I've competed at. Um, and, you know, I always think about competing, but obviously – where I, my money lies right now is in professional wrestling, but when if something comes along, I'm never going to turn down the opportunity to compete. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned before you were always into professional wrestling. Then you didn't want to get hit in the face, so then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kind of became your top priority. Then back mm-hmm. to professional wrestling. So when did that transition happen, and why did you go uh, from BJJ to professional wrestling? That's actually a great question. Um, and one that I, I get asked quite a bit, um, and I, get, I got asked a lot by you know more veteran professional wrestlers when I started, because when I left, you know, competitive Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I was a top ten ranked no geek practitioner in the world by the IBJJF rankings. I was, you know, I mean, I for the most part, I just won two IBJJF gold medals at the Chicago Open at blue belt. So like, I had dedicated my entire adult life at that point. You know, I was 25 at the time to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu from 19 to 25. Those six years were completely dedicated to BJJ. But during that time, over probably the span of like 22 to 25, those three years, I had, you know, made some trips out to do some of the biggest IBJJF tournaments in the world, uh, the Pan Ams in the world. And my results were were mixed. And, you know, the first couple times I went, I said, you know what, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him next year. I'm going to keep training harder. And, you know, I kept training harder. I kept working harder. I drop weight classes. I do it all. And I went against a guy in 20, 2015, the Pan Ams, um, who ended up, and now he's royalty jiu-jitsu. His name's Andrew Wiltsey. He is a buzzsaw of a competitor. And he, at the time in 2015, no one knew who he was. He wore a beat-down gi. No one knew who this guy was. He's, slung, he's slung, slinging a white monster can onto the, onto the mats. It's like, who is this guy? And he just beat the brakes off me to the point I had never gotten the brakes beat off me before. I I had competed against world champions before. I had competed against high-level black belts before. And what Andrew Wiltsey did to me made me look in the mirror and kind of say, this was back in March of, of 2015. And I said, man, I said, I don't know. Is this a thing that I can win? Can I win a pan championship or a world championship? And I, I thought about it. So then I did the Chicago Open that year, and I, I won both the gi and no gi in that. And I said, okay, 
So I kind of gave myself a timeline. I said, I got to go to the Worlds this year and win at least two matches to make it feel like I'm not just staying in one spot and do it, and doing the definition of, of insanity and doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time out with our affiliate at that time uh, in New Breach, Chicago, training out there with them. I, you know, everything was dedicated to that. And I went to the Worlds, and I lost in the first round. And I remember sitting on the couch of – uh, of our black belt at that time, Mark Vives, I was watching his house for him after the world team went on vacation to the Philippines. And I said, you know what? I just don't think this is, this is the move anymore. I, I think that if I just keep doing this, I'm going to be kind of miserable. I'm never going to achieve what I want to achieve. And I, I took a week to reset. I took that week and I did not train at all. And that was the first time in six years that I took a full week off of training. I had never taken any time off. I would go do a tournament next day. I would train. So I came back to Ohio and I decided to take a few more days off. And one of those days, coincidentally, I went to Monday Night Raw because I was, you know, watching wrestling at the time. It was something that, you know, in that prep for the Worlds really got my mind off of jiu-jitsu and gave me an escape. And at the time, one of the guys that I had watched when I was 15, 16 coming up was a guy named Kevin Steen. At this time, he's in the WWE now as Kevin Owens. Mm-hmm. Um and he had just won the NXT title and was having this crazy run where he got called up to Raw really quickly and had just wrestled John Cena and beat him at the pay-per-view. And I was like, holy cow. And the next night they were in um, Cleveland. So I went to Raw uh, with fellow well, now Jiu-Jitsu black belt Shannon White, um, who runs True Art Jiu-Jitsu up in the Medina area. And I didn't tell him, but we watched it. And, you know, Owens had such a big role in this Raw. And I was like, man, I was like... I always wanted to do this, and you know what? Maybe I need to take a shot here. So that night I went home, and I laid in bed, and I started Googling wrestling schools in the area because the last time I thought about a wrestling school was 2006. It's 2015 now. It's nine years later. It's it's a business like any other business. Everything changes across and through that time. So I came across two schools, one of which was Absolute Intense Wrestling School in Cleveland, Ohio. I had remembered AIW from back when I was – following the indies and i'd always kind of heard their name because they always kind of brought in the biggest names in the area everywhere else kind of like was like kind of locally guys like this is kind of cool it's pro wrestling it's fun to watch but like aiw brought in the name guys and um when i saw who was running their school at the time it was candace LeRae and johnny gargano who are both now WWE superstars Mm -hmm. and i remember speaking to and this is small world stuff i had taught kids class at east coast for five six years at this point and I, I remembered the guy. I, I was teaching this guy's kids for years. And I was like, man, how the heck do I remember? How do I remember this guy? It turns out that his name is James Bounce, and his, his two sons, Jackson and James, too. Uh, I was like, man, how do I remember this guy? And he turns out he was a professional wrestling referee back when I would go to shows when I was 14 and 15. <laughs> and it's just a small, world thing. So I pulled him aside, and I said, hey, I said, here's where I'm at in life. I said, I think I'm going to quit competing in jiu-jitsu and i'm going to get trained to be a pro wrestler i'm going to go into pro wrestling i'm between these two schools aiw and this other school what do you think and he said uh the way i've watched you attack jiu-jitsu over the last five years you need to go to aiw's because aiw is a school because it's going to be what you need in terms of pushing you and what you're going to want to achieve knowing your mental mindset so then I ended up enrolling in August of 2015 to the AIW Wrestling Academy. And from there, that's kind of the history. 
Wow, that's an incredible story, Dominic. Looking back at that time in your life when you made that huge transition in your life as a competitor, any regrets looking back at it? Or do you think you actually made the right choice when you made it and the rest is history, like you said? So I've always thought about it. And I think I've always thought, did I make a bad choice? And no, I think that I I made the complete right choice. Um, I I hate to like downplay myself, but I, I do think that like, where I was at, you know, I was probably at the peak of what I was going to get to. The only thing I could maybe say would change is I probably would have, it would have taken me as long to maybe get my brown belt. Maybe I'd be a black belt by now had I not run in or had I not chosen professional wrestling because obviously the time dedication to going to pro wrestling changed a lot of what I had from jujitsu. But I really wouldn't change anything for it. Um, the successes that I've had in professional wrestling, I'm sure we'll get into that kind of have far and above outweighed my successes in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And and that's completely fine because my time in Jiu-Jitsu really kind of forged me and made me into the professional wrestler that I am. It taught me a lot of lessons that a lot of professional wrestlers don't get. For an example, and this is one I always bring up, uh, when you're professional wrestling, the first however many years you do it, I I usually say at least five, um, the first five or so years of professional wrestling is eating a lot of shit more or less you know you're, you're driving a lot of long drives for very little to no money to gain experience but that's the difference is there's money there when i started competing in jiu-jitsu back in 2010 and for those five years that i was really into competing we paid to go we paid to be in the tournament we paid to travel to the tournament and then the payoff was just cool competitive matches. There was no like real fiscal payoff at that time. Now jiu-jitsu is completely different. Jiu-jitsu is very money-based and it's awesome. And I'm so happy to see how the sport has grown. But at that, you know, when I was competing, it wasn't there wasn't really money there. So when I started pro wrestling and they're like, hey, you know, even if I had to drive the six hours to get to wherever I was going, here's 50 bucks. I was like, <laughs> I was like, at least there's some money here. And then, you know, there's the opportunity to merchandise myself, sell my own merchandise and make money. So I was like, Oh man, but you get a lot of, you know, young individuals that come to professional wrestling, they don't see that. They're just like, wait a minute, you tell me I have to give up my entire Friday and Saturday to drive here, beat my body up, drive back, and I'm only making twenty five dollars and really after everything else I'm not making any money. So they don't understand that. So to me, it, it gave me a completely different mental mindset going into it, which helped me out a lot. And then also I just think that like I came into professional wrestling in a different mindset of like cardiovascular shape and other shapes that like people aren't necessarily ready for like to me like doing a lot of the cardio drills that involve in the early wrestling training wasn't a big deal to me because like i'm used to moving bodies around i'm used to you know moving humans and having people try to actually tear my arm off so it was a big help there yeah, and I was going to ask you about some of the early wake-up calls from that transition to jiu-jitsu to professional wrestling because you always hear from people that the lifestyle of a professional wrestler can certainly be more difficult than that of an MMA fighter or a boxer, for example. And it seems like you know those first five years might have been that for you. Were there moments in those five years where you felt unmotivated by all the things that were going on or maybe questioned what you were doing? So that's a good question. No, I kind of made... I kind of made a decision like for me, and this is something that, you know, before we lost his time and him and I had a, had a great sit down with, you know, him and I are, are, are similar in the terms of having these highly obsessive personalities that when we fixate on something, it's our goal to be the best at that thing that we can be. And I really think that, you know, when I made the transition to wrestling, that was my goal. It was my goal was to get as far as I could in it. And at the time, so we're looking at 2015, you know, Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan had just mm-hmm. kind of had his big run and they were kind of changing 
the WWE was kind of changing their mind on what they wanted. They they wanted good wrestlers now that maybe weren't six foot seven and three hundred pound athletes. So you know it was like okay, well maybe the WWE could be a thing. And this is 2015, so what is now known as all elite wrestling was not even uh, like a pipe dream at this point. So my main goal when I started professional wrestling was to get to a company called Evolve. Um, Evolve is run was at the time run by a gentleman named Gabe Sapolsky, um, who had run ring of honor during my favorite years of independent wrestling so to my to my standstill in my head was well in 2005 to 2008 when i loved independent wrestling this guy ran ran it all so if i could get to at least that point at least it will make up to say that i made it to this far so then while all that ends up happening um all that ends up happening johnny and candy well johnny at the time starts to work a lot for WWE. He gets on NXT. He starts winning matches. He wins the tag titles while he's still training us. And it's, it's a big deal. So I'm at that point, I'm like, well, I'm like five inches taller. I'm like three, four inches taller than Johnny. And like, I'm a thicker guy than Johnny. Like maybe it's not out of the realm of belief. So I never had a wake up call where I was like, man, I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe there's been some times in that first five years because we're at, you know, around like 2019 ish where I was like, man, I like, dedicate a lot of my life to this. And do uh, would I change it? And at times, you know, when you're on the road for eight hours and you're looking at darkness and everybody else in the car is sleeping and you're bumping some sad music, you think, man, I could be like doing anything else right now. But at a point, too, you then remember, and this is why I tell a lot of the kids that come into professional wrestling school, when you do something like mixed martial arts or you do something like professional wrestling, professional wrestling more so than MMA, though, is a lot of kids watched professional wrestling when they were young and they said, man, it's my dream to be a pro wrestler. And even though you're not making as much money as you want to make on it and you're doing all these things, you're kind of living out this dream that, you know, everybody else in your high school and everybody else, you know, that you went to grade school with probably gave up and they probably clocked their nine to five and, you know, enjoy their lives. But there's a there's a sense of regret in their life. And for me, I look at it every day and I don't have a sense of regret in it because I've been a relentless dream chaser since the day I was 18 and I've never stopped chasing that dream, and I really don't plan on stop chasing that chasing that dream until I really physically can't anymore. So, like, that's my thing: is as long as you're relentless chasing dream, you should have no regrets. Yeah, I love to hear that. You mentioned uh, Johnny Gargano at AIW. What was that like having him as you know a coach, mentor, and even like a training partner when you first started getting into the business? I always talked to Candice. Candice and me always had a good relationship in terms of like, I, I did a couple of road trips with her where she needed a ride and I just volunteered and stuff. I was like, I, yeah, sure. I can drive, you know, to Baltimore and back. And uh, I always asked her, I said, I said, how did you and Johnny know that I might be a little bit different than the other students? She said, well, cause you came with actual wrestling shoes on the first day and we saw your ears that were cauliflowered. So we knew you were a little different, but then Johnny, Johnny and me related a lot because you know, he he knew my scope of wrestling. Like I didn't come in, and and as the trainer at the AEW wrestling school now, I'm one of the one of the trainers there. I can tell a lot by how much a kid knows about wrestling by the wrestling that they talk about. If all you talk about is WWE or AEW, like I know, okay, you watch some wrestling, but like I was able to reference all these old obscure independent wrestling matches from like this Arab this bygone era of independent wrestling. And I think at that point, the giant was like, man, like he knows what he's talking about. And I think Johnny always knew because I was able to kind of run stuff, pick stuff up quicker. The jiu-jitsu training helped me in terms of being able to put stuff together. Um, but, you know, having Johnny as an instructor at the start of my career was, you know, essential. He taught 
he taught wrestling a lot differently than how a lot of people are taught it. You know, a lot of people are kind of just taught the real basics and then just kind of like, okay, go figure it out. But Johnny was very regimented in how he was able to teach us things. Uh, Johnny had, you know, had multiple WWE tryouts at that point by the time he started really training at the school. So he was able to kind of, you know, let us know what, like the WWE and you know bigger companies are looking for and he had so much he had a wealth of experience going into that and you know then bring Candice in who had been you know around the world as an independent wrestler as well it was a massive thing just to kind of teach us the habits you know uh, as well just the basic skills you know Johnny was big when I first started you know he was big into the idea in jiu-jitsu is, you know, you're never supposed to show when you're in pain. You're never supposed to show when you're vulnerable, whereas in professional wrestling, that's such a big thing. So it was like a big adjustment that he would always push into me of how to do that. And then also Johnny's just got a next-level wrestling mind, um, obviously, to make it as far as he's made it, you know, with not being six foot five. You know, he's, you know, Johnny's like five, nine on a good day, but he's just got such a good wrestling mind. He knows how to put matches together. He knows when to do it, how to do it exactly. And he kind of showed us how to do that. And it was massive. Yeah, he truly is an incredible talent. I also believe that when you were at AIW, uh, you developed a strong relationship with Britt Baker. Uh, Now she's doing great things with AEW personally. I find her to be the best women's wrestler on that roster. How did you build a relationship with her? And what do you think about what she's doing now? Oh, uh, great. Uh, so Britt is actually what we would consider a classmate of mine. So okay. I started school in 2015 or in August 2015. Around November of that year, I remember we were running a show. At the time, AIW was running, they were running an offshoot all-girl show called Girls Night Out. And we had heard of this girl from the Pittsburgh area named Britt Baker. Um, and when she had gone and done her initial WWE tryouts, Canyon Seaman and William Regal had told her, we know you're from Pittsburgh and we know you're, you're trained already, but you would tend to gain a lot if you went and trained with Johnny and Candace. And they knew. So they sent Candace our, so John, so Canyon Seaman and William Regal told her to come to AIW. So she would usually come one to two days a week. You know, when we would train, we train on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Usually Candace or usually Britt would come one to two days a week. And she would, you know, she was in dental school at the time, so she would go to class, leave class, drive two hours, two, two and a half hours to Cleveland, drive two, two and a half hours back at 11 o'clock when it was done. So I kind of always knew that Britt was different in terms of that because she didn't really need to be a wrestler, you know? She's, mm-hmm. She was going to dental school. She's she's one of the brightest, you know, one of the brightest people I know. You know, from day one, you know, her and I were, were close, and I think she saw, you know, that, like, I knew what I was – doing and i knew what i was talking about and like that as well like i had an affinity for wrestling and i loved wrestling so we always would talk and a lot of times you know early Britt baker stuff she would ask me opinions like we would dm or she would text me and she'd say what do you think about this what do you think about that she like once i had debuted she would send me matches to ask me what i thought and actually she was in my first match ever i had my first match ever was a six-way scramble match and she was in it with me so to see Britt's success is is amazing you know it was always really cool to see her success and then the more and more it got there the cooler it got um and i think the greatest thing about Britt is that she's never changed in terms of who she is uh for an example if AEW's in town, she wants all of us to come out with her and she introduces us to everybody. She'll introduce me as, Hey, this is Dom. You know, we train together. You know, he helped me out immensely at the beginning of my career. 
Um, and she'll introduce me to everybody on the AEW roster that way if I'm, you know, hanging out with her after the show at, you know, the hotel bar or somewhere. And then last year in May, we had this opportunity to do a really cool moment where Britt had not wrestled for us since she had left in September of 2019. But she had really wanted to come back to AIW just to kind of give a thanks. But we wanted to do it completely unannounced. So uh, John Thorne, the promoter of AIW, came up with this idea where I would challenge for the absolute title, which was our biggest championship at the time, against Matt Cardona, uh, formerly known as Zack Ryder, mm-hmm. who is the far and away most hated, was at the time was the most hated guy on the roster and on the independency at that time. And we had this idea where I would be on the hook of winning the match and then um, – the goons that Matt Ryder or Zach Ryder had would come out and would attack me. And then my two of my students that I had trained, Josh Bishop and Wes Barkley, would come out and they would save me. And then they would get attacked by Chelsea Green, who was who's Cardona's wife. And then it would look like they were going to beat us all up. And then out of nowhere, Britt's music hits and Britt comes out. And, you know, Britt had to get, you know, special approval to do this. And she came out and we had a, we had an eight person tag match and, it was one of the one of the coolest moments ever. And Britt, after the mat or after the show, did a meet and greet because she was unannounced. And out of all the money she got, she didn't keep a single penny of it. And she made wow. quite a bit. She made sure that everybody in the match that wasn't Cardona, Chelsea, or that wasn't Cardona or Chelsea got extra pay that night. And and that's the way Britt is. Um, she stayed late, signed an autograph for everybody. And, you know, she got me tickets to All Out this year. Um, I, I texted her. I was in Chicago. I was going to buy tickets. And I said, hey, I said, if possible, could you get me some tickets? And she got me great seats. So I, I view Britt as like, uh, as like a sister. And her success is one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, you know, her and then uh, through her, I've gotten a chance to hang out with Adam Cole a bunch. And he's awesome, too. And they're just two of the best people. Well, yeah, that's incredible to hear. I hate the city of Pittsburgh being an Ohio guy, but absolutely <laughs> well, love Britt Baker and seeing what she's real. Britt might love Pittsburgh, but she's from Puxatani. Right, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, it's cool. It, it, it's wild for me to watch the NFL on Sundays and see Najee Harris and Pat Framuth, and then right. I see on Dynamite, you know, her, she just hangs out with Pat and these guys. Like, this is wild to me. Yeah, and I was in the crowd at AEW Beach Break in January oh, of, yes. I think it was 2021, right? Yeah, and yeah. Britt comes out and she's making all these Britt, or she's Britt Baker. She's making all these Baker yep. Mayfield jokes. Baker that one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was terrible to hear, but when she's not from, <laughs> when it, the show was not in Cleveland, nine times out of ten, I'm always actually rooting for Britt Baker. So that's yeah, a great story absolutely. to hear. Yeah, talking to uh, Dominic Garini on Forge in Ohio, back to your personal like character and your personal wrestling life. In terms of character development, have you had any issues potentially on the creative side in creating that unique persona that is so crucial well, to a professional wrestler? Well, that's a great question. Um, and, and as as now a trainer, I kind of have to have this conversation with a, with a bunch of young individuals that are – you know, thinking that their first wrestling gimmick is going to be their gimmick for life. And I actually, I was just talking with Shannon of all people, my, my friend Shannon Blackbelt up at True Art about this yesterday. And I think one of the biggest things for any young wrestler to understand is your first gimmick isn't your life gimmick. Like the undertaker wasn't the undertaker when he started, he was like mean Mark and he mm-hmm. was even different characters before that. So until you find a character that sticks, it's going to be something different. So Obviously, like like I said, Kevin Steen, Kevin Owens, my favorite wrestler of all time. This dude wore basketball shorts or a singlet, and he wore like a t-shirt and he wrestled. I was like, man, I'd love to be him. I want to be him. And then I, for the most part, 
John Thorne and then Chandler Biggins at the time before he passed away, I didn't let them know a lot about my background. And I, I didn't wear a lot of jujitsu shirts when I first started, like, because I had like all these shirts of all the tournaments I had been in. I would usually like be like very coy on what I wore. And then finally, like one night, it, they got something got asked, and they're like, "Well, how like how good were you at jiu-jitsu? And I was like, "Well, you know, I was you know top ten in the world at one point, and Peter all around the world." And they're like, "What?" And then at this point, they were like, "Well, that's your gimmick." And I was like, "God, I was like, I really don't want to do this." I was like, "I really like this is a fresh start. I really don't want to be the jiu-jitsu guy." But they kind of helped develop. We had a we had a number of nicknames when I first started. Uh, they wanted to call me their favorite was they used to call me top 10 because you know obviously the ranking so the first pair of wrestling gear i have actually says top 10 on the back of it. it's somewhere like tucked away in my closet like i ate this pair of wrestling gear i wore like three times so we were like we'll call well, top 10 was one so then the other two names that came across the the docket were I don't, we were they were like you have to use your regular name you cannot have a fake name they're like you we can look you up there is a legitimate background behind you you have to be you. And I said, okay. But they're like, we have to give you a moniker. And I was like, fine. So top 10 was one. The other one, which is kind of, man, I really wish I had gone with this one, is was King of the Streets. John had a buddy who used to do tough man competitions. And back in the day, they would call the tough man in Cleveland the King of the Streets. So his buddy had won the, the King of the Streets a few times. So he's like, King of the Streets is a cool nickname, which is also coincidentally Marco Huas' nickname. And then now kind of Sol Sokoa of WWE, he kind of has a similar name. He's the Street King. Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing I didn't go with that. And then the last one was the one I liked the least out of the three. And it ended up being kind of my calling card now of my career. Uh, John Thorne came up with the idea of, well, you know, you, you can do these arm bars. You can do these chokes. Like, you can collect anything. Like, let's call you the Bone Collector. And I was like... Dude, there's a Denzel Washington movie named that. No way. And I hated it. And I said it in a promo, and they're like, that's it. So at that point, I was the bone collector. Um, <laughs> and I hated it. And when I first started, the biggest challenge I had was, well, how do I pro wrestle, but how do I do jiu-jitsu at the same time? Because no one had really done that yet. There had been guys who had introduced pro wrestling into jiu-jitsu jiu into pro wrestling, like Brian Danielson had done it a lot. Um, Davey Richards had done a very good job of it. And then there was a faction at the time at Evolve, which I'll, I'll re-reference Evolve, called Catchpoint. It was uh, Tracy Williams, Drew Gulak, and uh, TJ Perkins at the time. Um, and they just – Matt Riddle had just started doing pro wrestling, and he had a very successful UFC career, had some issues with failing drug tests. And at the, about the time I broke in, Riddle was starting to really get popular. And I did a seminar with Drew Gulak that Riddle happened to be at, and I had a really good chance to talk to them. And Gulak, who is now a, a pretty high-ranking WWE, like he's been on the roster, but he does a lot of the assisting of training guys. Like I know he helped train Logan Paul. Um, Gulak would look at me after a seminar and say, "Well, why do you lock up like a pro wrestler?" And I said, "Well, it's not so." He said, "No." He says, "You're a jiu-jitsu guy. I want to see you do like start a match with jiu-jitsu and then delve into pro wrestling when you need to." So that was the big thing. When I started, I wouldn't lock up like a pro wrestler. I would do like a tie clinch. I would pull guard. I would do all these things that would then like lead me into like pro wrestling moves like headlocks and you know drop to holds things like that. Um, and then I talked with Riddle a bunch, and it was like, well, what's the cool parts of Jiu-Jitsu that you can do and bring in? And it was like, at the time, I was pissed because he started doing the twister. And I was like, well, I was like, hey, man, like, you just took one of the coolest things I could do. But I found out ways to, like, do, like, cool moves. And then I also figured out pro wrestling made doing certain things a lot easier because it was a, a complying opponent, not someone that's fighting every move you're doing. 
So the initial like character that I had was I would just wear my MMA shorts or some sort of rank. I would wear my medals at the time out to the ring, wore no shoes, which was a surprisingly like difficult thing for a lot of people to grasp. I will always remember my second match. I made a terrible, like a terrible mistake. Like I, I missed going out of the ring. So I just jumped out of the ring and I got booed out of the building. And as I was selling on the outside of the ring, a fan looked at me and goes, Rings a lot harder than the cage, huh? And I just, I know sold it, but I was like, oh, God, this, is, this, this sucks. But those initial times were, like, interesting because, like, I was trying, I had to do wrestling a whole lot differently than everybody else did. Like, everybody else could do their basic international, like, lock up headlock, all that good stuff. And, like, for me, I had to figure out ways around that. Over time, I was able to kind of transition into the kind of wrestler that I am now, which is completely different than I would have been back when I started in 2016, when I debuted in March 2016. I've kind of transitioned into an all-around wrestler now that everybody knows has the submission threat, and like I have all these kind of legitimate skills. So it, it's been a big transition, but it's been a learning experience, and it's interesting because if I have another martial artist that comes into the pro wrestling realm, I kind of have to like show like, Hey, like you're probably going to have to do something you don't like to start before you can wrestle. Like you get to see the guys on TV wrestle. Right. And the, the nickname, the bone collector, I know you weren't fond of it at first. Is that still attached to you or is that kind of in the oh, past? Oh yeah. No, it's, 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 I have a few nicknames. That is the one that I'm most associated with. Usually on all my ring outs, they, I'm the bone collector, Dominic Greeny. Um, so I'm still attached with that. And then I actually, of all things, have a very funny nickname that was given to me by AEW's Eddie Kingston. Eddie and I always had a good relationship when I started wrestling uh, because, once again, he's from that kind of golden era of independent wrestling. And he, like, respected how much I knew about it. And we would always talk. And he also loves mixed martial arts and martial arts in general. Mm-hmm. So he would always – he was he always, like, knew – like, he always respected me. Um, so we were backstage once, and we were t- – it was me – Eddie, Tom Lawler, and Eric Stevens. And we were talking, and Tom was uh, com- champion for this company in the Oregon, Washington region called uh, Prestige. And he, Tom gets to, was like, it was like the promoter was asking Tom, like, who do you want to wrestle? And he was like giving names. And then Eric was like, he's like, I pitched Eric, and he said Eric wasn't a big enough draw. And then uh, Eddie goes, well, who are you going to wrestle? And he goes, oh, I pitched Dom, and he took Dom. And, and Eric goes, or and Eddie goes, so you're telling me that they chose Dom? He goes, must be a big draw in the Pacific Northwest. Call me Italian-American dragon instead of the American dragon like Danielson. So the Italian-American dragon was like a joking around nickname that I started to just use a couple times that people love. Uh, just because it's like a little joke on the Danielson nickname. So it all that all works out, and I've got that as like an alternate nickname too. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Eddie Kingston, how chopped up has he uh, gotten your chest in the past? Uh, the So I've wrestled Eddie twice. I wrestled him once in Akron, and, and that was a different Eddie. And I, 100% full disclosure, that was a whole different Eddie Kingston than the, the second match I had with Eddie. That was an okay. Eddie that I think was on kind of the – he didn't know if he wanted to wrestle anymore. He'd been wrestling for 20 years and didn't know. So I, I think we both were bad mental points of our lives at that point. I think the match was good, but we, I think we both knew we had a better match in us. So then we, he gets signed to AEW, and the pandemic happens, and Eddie is you know back in love with wrestling, and I can tell. And and John Thorne messages me about three weeks before we have one of our shows. I think we had 
two shows in April of 2021, right? Like when we kind of had the go to come back from the pandemic and it was, Hey, the first night you're going to wrestle Lee Moriarty. And I said, Oh, that's cool. I was like, you know, I love Lee and you know, Lee's gone on to amazing success. And I love, mm. I love the success he has had. And then he says night two, he goes, I got Kingston and I want you to wrestle him. And I said, Oh, okay. And it was really cool because like i i've loved like i said i've loved eddie for years i've actually held mitts for eddie i've held mitts for eddie in the back when he was getting ready to do a kickboxing smoker because he knew i was the only one who knew how to hold mitts for him because he needed to practice so we did those shows without announcing any of the talent on the shows so those shows were what is like known as like mystery vortex where one person comes out and then the next person comes out so calling the match with eddie was something that like I could tell he was super into having the best match he could because you know he owed a lot to AW. AW, in his own words, kept him fed during years where no one else wanted to use him, and he had this deep amount of respect for me. So we went out, and I will tell you, we only were able to have 120 people in attendance that night. But when Eddie came out, he hit that stage. It is one of the loudest sounds in my professional wrestling career. Wow. 100, 120 people sounded like 1,200. Um, and then we proceeded to have one of my favorite matches of my career where he beat the shit out of me and I beat the shit out of him. And I will remember I almost bit my tongue off of that match. He gave me a DDT and I kept my mouth open by accident. When I fell, I bit my tongue and I had not had my mouth guard on, I would have bit through it. But he had nothing but great words to say to me. And, you know, whenever I see Eddie, we always just have great discussions. Like, it's nothing. And the man does hit as hard as as it looks on TV. Yeah, that's an incredible story. I'm sure you're full of incredible stories and full of incredible opponents as well. And that's kind of what I want to get into here next is some of the opponents you've had. Because there's an extensive list of great guys you shared the ring with. First, I have to ask you about one of the top guys in the business today. You wrestled Maxwell Jacob Friedman in a match that was very entertaining and story heavy. It involved promos as well. What do you think about when you look back at that match that happened all the way back in 2017? I had two matches with Max in 2017. Uh, the one you're watching, I think, happened in New York. And then I think, okay. like, a couple of weeks later, we had a uh, a match in Mender on the Lake in this terrible little bar called Tequila Jacks. So Max and me came into wrestling around the same time. Obviously, Max is a supreme athlete, like, all-state football player, pretty good amateur wrestler. And Max would email Thorne at nauseam, send him messages at nauseam, and John would always leave them unread uh, because John runs uh, one of the most successful wrestling companies in the United States, so he gets about 50,000 messages a day. We were at WrestleCon, which I don't know if you know what WrestleCon is. WrestleCon is like a big convention they do every year in conjunction with WrestleMania, and it's kind of like the independent wrestling, like big, everybody gets together kind of thing. And I had worked the AW table with John that day. I would wrestled like three matches that weekend, and MJF was just bumping around and, and he sat down and talked to us. And I remember him and me sat down and we talked about like wrestling and life. And it was like a really good conversation. And I, I kind of told him that day, I said, I said, just, I said, just keep talking. I said, just keep like talking to John. I said, he'll bring you in because he, he had to be one of the places he wanted to work. And we worked together in Canada for a company called Alpha One, who, which is conveniently run by Ethan Page. And I said, you know, I said, Max, I said, I'm going to get you in. I said, just give me time. So it came into, I had that match them at tier one and it was a pretty decent match. And then I knew we had a spot open on a show. And I said, John, I said, I want to wrestle MJF at the time. And he's like, okay. He goes, well, I'll, I'll reach out to him. And 
MJF, this is a true story. He turned down doing WWE extra work that weekend. Uh, it was SummerSlam weekend to come and wrestle me in Cleveland or met around the lake. So he did that. And, and Max is a tireless worker. He works his ass off. He is a dickhead, but he is, he, he's almost like, he's almost like he's a, he's our dickhead kind of thing. And I think that's where a lot of the AW fans have kind of taken to him. But, you know, Max was awesome. And the, the two matches that I had with him, and I think I did a program with him a little bit in Alpha One in Canada. So always enjoyed my time with Max. Do you still have a connection with Max at all? Uh, so when I, when I bump around to some of the AEW stuff, I'll see him and we'll talk. And, you know, it's not as close as it was. Obviously, Max is one of the biggest stars in the world. He's sure. got a lot of stuff to worry about. Uh, you know, he just got cast in the Von Erichs movie. But, you know, Max was another one. Max always put a warden for me back when I worked for ML, before I worked for MLW. He would always tell Court Bauer, who runs MLW, you should bring Dom in. He would fit really well in the, in the Tom Waller faction. And then I got brought in and put in that. But that was, you know, that was while he was just finishing up there. Um, but, you know, it, we don't, we're definitely not as close as we were when he, we were on the Indies and Sieges there almost every weekend. But, you know, when I do see him, he talks to me. We talk. We talk about wrestling. And it's always a, a good time to catch up when I see him. Sure. I believe it was three or so years ago when you faced Josh Bishop in a submit or surrender match. Has that been the most brutal match of your career so far? So I, I always I, – so I, I link into two matches. That's one of them. Okay. That match has a lot of, like, good backstory behind it. We barely got – that was on AW's like, big WrestleMania weekend card. And we like barely made that card. It was like a story that we were telling that I think that maybe we didn't put as much effort into it as we would. Uh, definitely not as much effort into it as Josh and I had wished. And I remember like going into that WrestleMania weekend, there was a podcast, like a pretty popular wrestling podcast that had kind of like downgraded me and had said like, oh, if Dominic Green's got all these bookings for WrestleMania weekend, you know, the Indies are in trouble. And I remember like that really firing me up. And I'm like, I'm going to have the best match of the weekend. And I didn't know if it was going to be with Josh or if it was going to be at another indie that weekend, but I knew I was going to have one of the best matches. And then when Josh and I got together that night, because we just met outside of the White Eagle Hall in New Jersey, we started talking about this match, some of the ideas we had. You know, Josh has a lot of the same. So Josh is much younger than me, but he has a lot of the same kind of like mental makeup of like wrestling that he's watched and independent wrestling. And we had a lot of crazy ideas and we kind of were able to bring them all together perfectly in like this beautiful blending of like 10 minutes of violence. And I took some of the craziest stuff in that match. I remember waking up the next day, not going to wrestle because I had one more match and I still did it, but oh. that's one of them. And then I had a tag team match in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where we did essentially like a tag team quasi deathmatch type deal where it was me and my tag partner now, Kevin Koo. We wrestled former AEW talent, uh, Marco Stunt, and a guy named Cabana Man Dan. And I don't know why. We were just all feeling some kind of way that day. And, and just some of the stuff we did, and I, I remember I chipped my tooth really bad in that match, and that was one of the reasons why I started wearing a mouth guard is I chipped my tooth that day. And just like there's a, there's a great clip of like a highlight trailer of like the end of the match is like me with like a bunch of thumbtacks in my head and I'm like undoing my wrist tape. I'm bleeding everywhere. And I just look like I hate my life. So the, but that Josh Bishop match, I remember the critical acclaim coming out of that weekend of it. And I just remember like being very proud of it. I remember being very proud of it because Josh Bishop was a guy that 
came up and came to the Adobe school when he was 18 years old and he's from Canton as well. So him and I would ride up the train together some days and, you know, we did a lot of road trips together. So to be able to share that moment with my student and really one of my good friends was, was a big moment for me. As a viewer, it's hard not to get squeamish when you see the tax come out. Uh, what's your reaction as the in-ring competitor knowing that you're going to get a handful of tax in your body by the end of the night? Uh, so I learned a lot about thumbtacks. Like when, and actually, of all people, Candace taught me this because she's famous for the getting super kicked by the Young Bucks with the with the with the yep. Nike Jordans with the thumbtacks on them. So I'd always ask her, like, "Hey, what are your tips if I'm doing thumbtacks?" And at the time when I wrestled Josh, I was I wrestled barefoot at the time, so that was even harder. Yeah. Um, and it was always like, "Well, she's like, you're gonna step on them, so she's like, you want them all in one." precise area because if they all go in at once it doesn't hurt as bad but if you have 10 little ones going in in different areas it sucks and no one has ever ever pulled that off properly to putting all the thumbtacks in one area not putting them everywhere tacks aren't that bad because they come in they go out really easily except for if they end up in your head like the wiffle ball bats with the tacks in them to the head that sucks worst pain of my life 10 out of 10 would not recommend this the barefoot stuff after a while, I just kind of figured out how to kind of goose step it and make it look really bad, but it didn't hurt that bad. Like I said, anything goes into your body, though, if it comes right back out, it's not too bad, usually. Wow, that's that's incredible hearing about that, about the thumbtacks. I want to talk about a match you had in 2021 with Minoru Suzuki. I know that had to be a dream match for you, but I also understand that you had returned to wrestling after an injury, if I'm getting that right. Can you just elaborate more and talk about that match with Suzuki and what that meant for you? Yeah, so I had uh, so I had the Eddie Kingston match in April, um, and then I was I was like on a pretty good run. Like through the pandemic, like I had stayed very busy. I I only taken time off when there was no wrestling going on, but I had come back really strong from the pandemic, and I was like really ripping. Um, and in the 2021, I was really ripping as well. Like I had wrestled Kingston, I had wrestled Lee. We just me and my tag partner had just wrestled uh, Finley and Juice Robinson, which at the time they were the New Japan tag. They had been New Japan tag champs. They were Impact tag champs at the time. So I was like on a really hot run. And then I had some some stuff going on with my body, and I, I knew something was wrong. So I had to get that all looked at, and that was May and May happens, June happens, July happens, and I'm kind of on ice. And then August happens, and I'm still on ice, and Suzuki announces a U.S. tour, and my friend Eric from uh, Time Bomb Pro and Fargo, North Dakota, of all places, where I was champion, said, hey, um, I really want to bring Suzuki in. What do you think? Uh, could you go? And I said, well, I said, I, if, if this is the last match I ever have, which at the time I thought, you know, due to some of the issues I was having, it might be, I thought maybe it's my last match, and I guess if I'm going to do it, you know, Suzuki's like a dream match of mine, so I'll do it against Suzuki. About a week prior to that match, I had finally gotten to see the specialized doctors I needed to see to kind of check my status of if I was ever going to be able to really wrestle full-time again. And they had cleared me right before that match, so I kind of knew that at least like that wasn't going to be my last match. But, you know, in going into that match and prepping for it, I was fully under the belief that it was probably going to be one of my last two to three matches – and then last year I had 100 matches, so it definitely changed a little bit from there. But uh, Suzuki was awesome. Uh, Suzuki is the man. He is as legitimate as they say. Um, he's also a big sweetheart. And, you know, the murder grandpa thing is definitely part of his lure. But he's also, a, just like I said, a very cool guy who 
was willing to give me a lot more than he needed to because I was I'm some American that he probably that he really barely knew coming into the match. But I know that when he got picked up from the airport, he asked about me, and then somebody said shooter, which is the wrestling term for like guy who knows what he's really doing. And he got very excited. And then I watched him watch me wrestle Zack Saber Jr. and he got very, even more excited. So it was just a really cool match. And like I'm not usually a big picture guy, and I need to be more after the death of Jay Briscoe. Like that's something I've been talking to my friends about. I want to start taking more pictures of shows. But like that was one where I knew I had to get the picture with Suzuki. It was just. It was a surreal experience, and I'm I'm happy to have that as one of my matches. I in my apartment here that I'm I'm sitting in right now, I have a number of posters, and that's one of the ones is a poster of me versus him signed by him and me. So, what were the emotions like after that match? Not only knowing that you had wrestled in one of your dream matches against one of your dream opponents, but also in the mindset that that might be one of your last matches of your career. Well. Like I said, I gotten cleared the week before, so I kind of knew it wasn't going to be my last match. Okay. But I wanted to – I didn't want to have this deal. To me, everybody – I we'd been so mum on – we'd been really mum on, like, my future in wrestling. Like, and I'd been very mum when people would ask me. I said, I, I, I don't know. And people were, like, very, like, oh, what's going on? Uh, so I wanted my big return to wrestling to be a big deal or at least a big deal to those around me. The only people that knew I was cleared to, to wrestle following that was I let Eric know, of course. I let Kevin Koo, my tag partner, know. And then I had let John Thorne, the Illinois VIW, know, like, hey, like, I'm I'm going to come back. So John and I had kind of dis- discussed when when should I come back. And every year, AIW, one of AIW's big four shows is a show called Hell on Earth. It's uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And... We had decided that I would come back there, but I would come back completely unannounced. We wouldn't announce it. it we wanted the genuine reaction of the fans for me to come back out. So I kind of had this plan. I was like, I, and I looked at uh, the guy who runs the video for uh, IWTV, and I said, hey, I want the last shot you shoot before you cut the feed to be me looking like I'm going to take my boots off and leave them in the ring and retire. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah. I said, and I kind of explained everything. He's like, okay, sounds good. So I remember taking my kick pad straps up and I start to go to untie my boots and I knew that the feet had cut. So like, I kind of didn't take my boots off and then I went to the back and then I wrestled a tag match that Sunday with, with coup. And I just kind of went dark at that point. I had, I put out like a nice statement on Twitter, like thanking everybody and saying that my future in wrestling was still very uncertain. I didn't know. And you know, you'd know more when you knew. So I remember no one knowing that I was going to come back on black Friday in 2021 and then I came back and, you know, last year was the busiest year of my wrestling career. Did you get a lot of support with that message on Twitter and when you made your return oh from, from fans? The, the, the messages I got from people, and I, I'll reference a couple of them here. The messages I got from people, A, when I made my first announcement that I had to take time away, I remember – there's three people I always remember reaching out to me. Number one uh, was Matt Mikowski, who – is a combat sports guy himself. Matt Rouse fought for Elite XC. He actually beat Matt Sarah's brother at one of the, one of the first Elite XC shows. He's a black belt and he, he's an awesome guy. And he said, "Hey man, I, I don't know what you're going through, but you know I'm here for you. If you need anything, let me know." He was one. Number two was Gail Garcia from AEW. At the time, he had just come back from a, a horrifying injury himself. You know. And he he implored me to take as much time as I needed away and that wrestling would be there for me when I came back, if I could come back. And I, I thanked him. 
I was always remember Daniel went out of his way to, to talk to me and he did not need to. And then the last one hits me very hard right now. There was a gentleman I'd worked with in MLW. His name is Richard Holiday. And Richard and I had had a lot of talk. Like we talked a bunch during our ML, our time in MLW together. And about a month ago, he had been kind of missing from wrestling for like six to eight months. And no one really knew. And it, no one was talking about it. I was like, I wonder what's going on with Richard. And, and as Sports Illustrated article dropped, and it turns out that uh, he's been gone these last eight months because he got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he's been going through treatments for that. And I, it, that hit me hard because I remember, you know, Richard was one of the guys who would constantly check on me. So I, one of the, when I found that out, that one of the first things I did was reach out to Richard. And I said, hey, man, like you were one of the ones that, you know, reached out to me. And I just want to make sure everything's okay. And, you know, if you need anything, just let me know. So those are the guys that I remember. And I remember, so that was the initial message. And then the message after the Suzuki match, a lot of people wanted to kind of pry into, you know, what was wrong with me. And, you know, it wasn't something that I wanted to discuss at that time. And I just said, just stay tuned. I said, you know, I don't, I'm hoping this isn't the end for me, but who knows. And then when I came back, uh, I had a little help from my good friend uh, at East Coast, Dan Candry, who, if you know anything, Dan is a lawyer. So to me, over the last couple of years, I've taken a lot of lore from the Michael Jordan Last Dance series. And when I came back, I wanted to do something. I wanted to do like the letter like Michael Jordan did when he came back from his retirement. So I had this whole thing written up and I, I used Dan's name and, and his law office logo. Uh, and that was just the the reaction to me coming back from that was great. And, you know, everybody was so welcoming coming back. Everybody was so happy to have me back. Once again, this is Dominic Garini with us on Forged in Ohio. Uh, it's great that you're back, and now you compete in a tag team with Kevin Koo called Violence Is Forever. Why'd you turn to tag team wrestling, and what was that adjustment like from being a solo competitor? Oh, good question. Uh, I wish more people asked us this, um, because we actually don't get asked this when we do podcasts, which I expected we would. Uh, so here is 2018, later 2018, like late, like late in 2018, Actually, not late in, like April, May of 2018. I had just gotten out of a relationship. Like, I had just gotten broken up with, and I was extremely depressed. Kevin, at the time, was kind of going through the beginning stages of a possible divorce, and he was super depressed. And we happened to both be at a show together, and we had known each other. And we just started kind of talking up. I think our, our depression kind of probably met like two magnets and grew us to each, each other. And we started talking about stuff. So then we started talking about wrestling and we noticed how similar our wrestling minds were. And then, you know, we started hanging out more. We got, we were more shows together, started talking even more. And we kind of just sat down one day and I texted him. I said, I said, have you ever thought about doing a tag team? And he said, you know, I thought about it, but you know, it's, it's gotta be the right thing. And, you know, that was something that we both agreed to. And at the time I was finishing up with evolve. Like I was in a pretty high level deal with evolve and, and, you know, it ended up not going the way I wanted to in the end. And I remember Gabe Sapolsky, who, who's now a WWE employee, telling me at the end, told me, hey, man, just reinvent yourself. Hit me up in November, and I think we'll have a spot for you back in Evolve, which was a big deal because they, they were kind of a WWE feeder at that time. But I also kind of saw well, the guys they were bringing in. I said, I don't know if this is for me. So at that time, you know, Kevin and I were like, let's start this tag team. And – at the time, you know, like I said, both highly depressed guys, like very sad all the time. And we took a lot of inspiration for our, ta- or at least our initial tag team from Timothy Thatcher and, and Walter, who's down and has gone through the WWE 
and their tag team known as Ring Conf. So we kind of jokingly called ourselves Sad Conf. We never thought it would pick up, and then people on the internet like loved it. And it was it's 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 very twenty twenties culture of like, hey, they have a funny name, so we're gonna like them kind of thing. But we kind of thought, you know, at that time I was a very successful singles wrestler. Kevin was picking up a little bit of steam, but not a lot. But I I had been successful. Like I had had these great matches in the IW. Like I had. You know, I was coming off this crazy good evolve. I was coming off of what, at least match-wise, was a good evolve run. Probably not perception-wise what I wanted to be as good evolve run. So we're like, okay, well, let's be a tag team. And that in its own right has its own inherent flaws. A, the style of wrestling is completely different. Obviously, there's four people in the match instead of two. So that becomes one. Uh, two, the rules are different. you got to you know kind of figure it in all your stuff. Then you have to figure out, I do all this cool stuff as a singles wrestler. Kevin does all this cool stuff as a singles wrestler. How do we mesh that together as a tag team? So there was a lot of trial and error, a lot of text messaging, a lot of phone calls trying to figure out what would work. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is... It's entirely harder to get two people booked at once than it is one. It, it carries a, a heavier price tag. And at that time, Kevin lived in Nashville and I lived in Canton. So it was like, okay, we have to talk promoters into paying two sets of trans plus our rates to come out. And, you know, we don't have any chances to practice together. You know, we're really just hoping that people are like, man, this sounds good. So we kind of started with a baseline of companies that we knew would do it, places that we kind of both work. So if they were bringing us both in, you know, it made sense to use us. So we started with that, and then we kind of got this mindset. Kevin's a very good designer. We had this mindset of, well, you know what? If we can get companies to pay for us to come there, you know, we'll wrestle, we'll wrestle for no rate, and then we'll sell our merchandise and we'll make our money that way, which ended up working. Um, and then throughout time, we just kind of put it all together. Uh, Kevin's an amazing wrestling mind, and I, you know, not too at home. I think I'm a pretty solid wrestling mind. So when you put those two minds together, we were able to figure a lot out and really become super successful in a super quick amount of time. But we put a lot of work in, you know, we ate a lot of, we ate a lot of shit, you know, per se to get to where we are, you know, and last year in pro wrestling Australia, we were top 10 in the world in, in their tag team list. Uh, we have, we are the four time concurrent winner now of the independent wrestling TV tag team of the year award. Uh, actually, there's never been another winner besides us. Um, we have like four, five championships. I've lost count at this point. They all just <laughs> they all just sit on my bookshelf here. So it's all worked out really well. And it, a lot of it just is, you know, we might be different people, but we have the same wrestling brain. And we kind of always work it out together. And I can tell you, like, don't think we've ever had an actual fight. Like, wow. we've had disagreements, but we've never, like, had a fight. Like, it, it works out and like I look out for him, he looks out for me. We we ask, you know, about our personal lives, you know, we're always looking out for each other. And I think that's one of the most important things is as a tag team. And I tell anybody in our school who wants to be a tag team, like, you know, even if you guys have different interests, like Kevin, Kevin Koo is not a sports guy. Absolutely not a sports guy. And I love sports. I love football. I love, you know, MMA. I love all these things. And Kev is like not really a sports guy. Um, so it's interesting, like that dynamic of like on a Sunday, like if we're together, I'm like following this crazy football stuff. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, and I'm just like, oh yeah, this is like what I do on Sundays. But then like, he's got like certain like likes of like music and other things that like, I don't like, but like the two things we bonded over were wrestling and music. He, my ex-girlfriend and him listened to the same music and she got me into that music and then he got me into it more. So those are the two things. And I, I tell every tag team, I said, you have to find your guys' balance of what brings you guys together. Even if you guys are different people. Is it the music? Is it the wrestling? Is it, you know, your hobbies, et cetera? And the more you're in tune, the better tag team you'll be. 
You said it happened relatively quickly, but how quick did it take you for that relationship to really build and take off and see that success in the ring? Mm, I mean, I think we had our first tag match in like June of 2018. And I would really say that we probably, we had a lot of matches from that June of 2018 mark until like, you know, through like I, we always Kevin and I always kind of signify one match as our as our as our kind of turning point. We have well, we have two turning point matches, and they're both in 2019. Uh, the first one was we wrestled uh, two AEW talent. They're, they're now AEW talents, uh, JD Drake and Anthony Henry, called over course. We wrestled them for Black Label Pro in February of 2019. That went right before that WrestleMania weekend, and that was far and away the best match we had had at that point as a tag team. Like light years better than anything we had done and drake and henry were former evolved tag champs and like they're two of the best wrestlers i've ever been in the ring with so we learned a lot from them and then the second one was we wrestled a team that's amazingly big in new japan right now called ozzy open mm-hmm. um and they've done some stuff for AEW too and we learned a lot from them and that ozzy open match was kind of the turning point for us um we changed the name of the tag team away from the joking name of sad comps to violence forever because we had already been considering it and they kind of pushed us to that um on top of that you know we kind of figured out our style we kind of figured out what we wanted to do and i really probably post april 2019 was where we were figured out so it was almost a full year of us just kind of trial and erring and figuring out what we wanted to do and how to do it before we kind of you know put it all together Right. And this is just so fascinating to me, seeing your journey in professional wrestling. I know we've talked for over an hour, but it's, again, just so incredibly fascinating to me. Violence is Forever, where did that name come from? I know you transitioned it, but where did that name in particular come from? It's actually a song title. Um, okay. So Ke- Kevin's really big into into hardcore music, and there was a band called Nails, and they have a song called Violence is Forever. And we just kind of thought it was really, like, we just thought it worked out. Like, both of our styles, like, in their own inherent ways are violent. Like, at the time, like, my submissions were violent and Kevin's always been a very good striker. And then I was starting to get really good at like chops and things like that. So the idea was like, when you wrestle us, it's just going to be a lot of violence. So we kind of came up with that. It, it was kind of funny because there was a, there, you know, there've been teams that also use that in their, in their name. Like there was a team in impact for a little while called violent by design. Then there was a team in California, which has AEW's Birdie King on it. Uh, it was Tim and Tyler Bateman. They called themselves Violence Unlimited. So it was like, you know, sometimes, you know, there was some confusions and stuff. But, yeah, it all just comes from a song called Violence is Forever by the band Nails. What do you think is the potential for Violence is Forever? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, obviously, top 10 in the world last year means that there was only nine teams better than us. Mm-hmm. and obviously two of those teams, one would be the Usos, and one of those other teams would have been FTR, who's one of the best teams in the world. What is the potential for us? Uh, for one, I think Kevin's one of the best wrestlers in the world, so the sky is the limit for Kevin. Um, I'm sure he would say the same about me. Really, our potential is unlimited. It's wherever we want to go. I, I don't necessarily know if we fit the WWE mold. Um, I think that we look a little different than what they would want there. I think our style, they wouldn't maybe believe us even though we could probably beat the shit out of everybody on the roster besides like the diamond mine creed brother guys but obviously i know so many people in aew and and by that extension ring of honor um so realistically our goal as a team is we would like to be signed to the ring of honor revival that tony khan is doing i have always said it i grew up 
in this era of Ring of Honor from 2000, will be known as for the 2002 to 2009 era of Ring of Honor. To me, that is the finest independent wrestling that ever existed. Guys like Brian Danielson, uh, Samoa Joe, Homicide, Roderick Strong, um, Nigel McGuinness, these guys were like my heroes growing up. Kevin Steen, these guys were my heroes growing up. And if I could be on that brand, because I think that's what Tony's vision for it is, that's kind of what we want. Yeah, that would be incredible to see you under that ROH banner. Is there any future interest for you to ever compete solo or have a solo character? Are you kind of violence is forever so, in the forever, no? You know? So, so it's funny. Pretty much every AEW fan in the world wants to see me and Kevin as a tag team. Uh, but John Thorne, the AEW promoter, he views me mainly as a single solo act. Um, so I do most of my solo work in AIW. So usually you're going to always see me in a singles match. Um, I don't know when this drops, but uh, if it has dropped or if it's going to drop for February 4th, I'm wrestling solo in Akron. Um, I'm wrestling Alec Price, who's one of the top independent talents right now. And almost all of my matches in AIW are, are singles matches. And Kevin and I do like to do a little bit of, of balance where we wrestle some solo matches. And, you know, when we did a lot of stuff for Time Bomb, obviously I wrestled Suzuki and I wrestled a, a rising independent talent named Brian Keith there who we had a great series of matches and Kevin's had a bunch of great singles matches there. Actually, Kevin's about to wrestle Christopher Daniels there. Uh, so I'm beyond excited for Kevin to get that opportunity. Kevin and I both know that we're probably due to the, the need for tag teams. We can make it further as, you know, a tag team, but you know, we're never going to turn on the opportunity to wrestle singles because that's what you get into wrestling for. Looking at professional wrestling through the years, tag teams do break up all the time, at, at least on screen, right? Do you ever imagine yourself in a storyline, at least, where you'd be pinned up against Kevin? It would probably need to be, uh, especially with our success on the current indie scene, sure. it would need to be something with a lot of money involved in it. Like, it, I could never see us breaking up on the actual indies. We would probably, it would have to happen in like an AEW or like a Ring of Honor or something, just because, like, it doesn't make really a super lot of sense to break up like successful independent wrestling tag teams since there's so few of them. Um, so I'm interested to, I mean, obviously, like I said, that's something that would have to happen way down the line. Obviously, you know, we see so much success together. We wouldn't want to ruin that by breaking up at all. So um, to, and this is something Kevin and I have always talked about to him when you talk about tag teams, everybody always, and this for better or for worse, you always say, well, who's the Marty and who's the Sean of the tag team? And I always jokingly say, well, I'm the Marty, you're the Sean. And then he'll say the same. And then he, his reply always is, there is no Marty, there is no Sean in this tag team. We're us and we're both really good at singles. And if we were to ever break up or have something, you know, it would be, we'd be fine. And that was a big thing when I thought, you know, I might not wrestle again. I, you know, I implored Kevin to take as many singles bookings as he could, you know, to stay relevant and stay active. And, you know, Kevin during that time got so much fucking better. And he, he just became such a complete wrestler at that time that, you know, it's helped us now as a tag team tenfold. Right. On a more somber note, I thought I would ask you about this because I saw you write on Twitter about it and you already mentioned his name, but the passing of Jay Briscoe and how a match for the Briscoes was a dream match for you. Anything you want to add to that and what the Briscoes meant for an indie wrestler like you? Yeah. So the Briscoes are the most self-made or two of the most self-made independent towns. Uh, kind of all time. Um, the Briscoes, until they had signed the new Ring of Honor deal that they signed last year, were always independent wrestlers or had always been with Ring of Honor. 
I watched Best of the Best with Mark and Jay wrestling each other. I had watched the Briscoes do everything in Ring of Honor. So the Briscoes as a tag team meant a lot just in general for independent wrestling. But, you know, they meant a lot just because even though – and you talk about breaking up, like – Jay and Mark never broke up, but Jay had these really successful single runs. Even Mark had successful singles runs as Ring of Honor television champion. So when I had found out about Jay, I had a friend who had messaged me, and he would kind of like, like, did you hear? And I was like, no. And then I kind of started to ask around because I, I wanted to hope that it wasn't true. And, you know, I got it confirmed to me through, you know, John had some sources in AEW, and, and he confirmed it. Like I said, the Briscoes are self-made. The Briscoes are guys that, you know, turned down WWE deals before because they felt better, you know, about the independence or Ring of Honor at that time. And it was one of the true matches that Kevin and I had truly won as a tag team. Uh, there's not a lot of, like, tag teams from, you know, our era of what we really loved in independent wrestling that still exist, nor are there a lot of high level tag teams at the level of the Briscoes, you know, they had just come off of the three matches last year with FTR. Um, so like that was the ultimate dream match for us. A lot of people on the internet always talk about us versus FTR being that match. And to Kevin and I, in, in our heads, as much as we would, you know, love to wrestle FTR to us, the match was the Briscoes. And this is something I haven't said publicly, but um, we were actually in negotiations to wrestle the Briscoes. Wow. Um, uh, for a company called Prestige, uh, I was just talking to the promoter today, and he was trying to do us versus the Briscoes up until, you know, that. So I look at everything that Jay Briscoe did, and you'll never find a more real person. And to less of the – I'm not – and I told my friend uh, Derek Dillinger this. I said, I'm not sad – and I told Kevin this too. I said, I'm, I'm not sad that we don't get the match. I'm more sad that – you know, Jay, who was an amazing father, an amazing brother, an amazing husband, you know, is no longer with us and, you know, everything that's gone on. But I'm, I'm also so happy to see how the wrestling community has kind of rallied around his family and really remembered him for how amazing of a performer he was. So it's definitely one that's hit, you know, me and some of my friends way harder than, you know, you would have expected. Because I was telling a promoter, I said, you know, when when Brody Lee passed away, it's it was big. But, like, to me, I was out of independent wrestling, following independent wrestling deeply when Brody made his name. And then he was, like, WWE guy to me. Uh, but, like, Jay Briscoe was, like, 16 years old when I was, like, 14 years – or when I was, like, 12 years old and, like – he was like the guy that was like, yeah, I could, I could be a wrestler kind of guy. So that one hit me deep just because. Yeah. Were you fortunate to ever have run-ins with the Briscoes? Yeah. So Kevin and I had a chance to meet the Briscoes last year when we did the Crockett Cup for the NWA. They were one of the teams in the Crockett Cup. And we just joked around with them for a little bit. And uh, I think I had a chance to kind of cross paths with them at one of the Ring of Honor shows I went to with Candice and uh, just fun-loving guy, man. Just always upbeat, always joking around, always having fun. Yeah, and like you said, the tribute on AEW was incredible, and just how it's brought the the wrestling community together right now is great. And it just proves that you know life is is too short, and you really have to make the best out of it. You mentioned how a match against the Briscoes was a sort of dream match for you. What are some of the other dream matches for you in your career? Oh, that's that's good. 
are we talking with like no barriers, like uh, contracts be damned? Yeah, kind con- of thing. Contracts be damned. Okay. Pick your okay. shot. Take my shot. Uh, well, one that the 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 easy answer because we've called him out multiple times and it's been in negotiations multiple times. Of course, would be uh, wrestling FTR. Um, I just think that you take one of the best tag teams, you know, under contract, and you put them up against one of the best unsigned tag teams, and it's it's a big recipe for a big gate and a big match. If we're you know, breaking down walls of contracts and things like that. I would love to wrestle in a tag team uh, field. I would absolutely 100% love to wrestle Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi uh, from New Japan, who are the current New Japan tag team champions. And then we have one independent wrestling dream tag team match that kind of trumps all for Kevin and I right now. And that would be Alex Shelley and Chris Saban, the Motor City Machine Guns. Um, we are good friends with Alex Shelley, and he he's fans of ours. So we're hoping at some point that that match can get made. Saban just started really doing more independent dates recently. So you know, when it comes to tag teams, those are kind of like the three big ones. Um, we would love any kind of connection to what used to be the Undisputed Era, which would have been like uh, Kyle O'Reilly, Roderick Strong, and Bobby Fish. If we could wrestle the any combination of those three in a tag team, uh, that'd be another one because a lot of our, our tag stuff comes kind of from Red Dragon. Uh, so getting a chance to kind of wrestle them would be big too. Now we got to knock like one of our big tag team dream matches off of our list last year and we got to wrestle the American Wolves. So uh, when it comes to single stuff, um, if he wants to come back and wrestle and do more, I would absolutely 110% love to wrestle Shibata um, as he's a guy I draw a lot of inspiration from. Tomohiro Ishii is another one um, from Japan that would be a, uh, one that I would very much like to wrestle. Kevin and I both have our ultimate dream match of Brian Danielson as he's, you know, a very big, you know, part of our careers. And then, as always, the, the number one dream match for me, and I don't know if it'll ever probably happen, but, you know, Kevin Steen, I, mm-hmm. I've, you know, had conversations with him before. Um he is very widely known. He knows that he's my inspiration for becoming a professional wrestler. Um, usually when I come on these podcasts and they ask, you know, who's your inspiration for becoming a professional wrestler? Kids are saying John Cena. Kids are saying, like, The Undertaker, The Rock, Stone Cold. And then I hit him with Kevin Steen, and people are just usually flabbergasted by that. Like, holy cow, like, what a weird one to go with. Uh, but, yeah, man, I was, like, 16 years old, and I see this, like, kid who looks like me older of course he's just talking mad trash and doing all these cool moves and i was like that's my guy and like i said it all kind of coincides that when he got his big WWE push was when i decided to kind of push myself into leaving jiu-jitsu to come to pro wrestling so um i've gotten a chance to kind of talk to him a few times and we've had some great discussions so if he ever comes back and does some indies i would love the opportunity to, to wrestle him and i'm sure there's i'm probably forgetting a couple of guys um but, you know, it, we're, wrestling's so cool because, you know, none of these matches that I'm saying are totally out of the realm of belief, which it's not possible for some high school kid that is playing high school to say, yeah, well, I want to play against Tom Brady or I want to play against, like, I want to play against, like, Lamar Jackson. Like, that's just not possible. But, like, pro wrestling is if, you know, you work hard, you're good, good enough, you can, you know, compete against your heroes. 
yeah, it's an incredible business, and those would be incredible dream matches for you to have. I look forward to seeing you hopefully in ROH one day and in those dream matches, and this was an incredible conversation. Before we wrap up, uh, anything you want to shout out in terms of social media handles, anything with Team East Coast Martial Arts, or any future events and bookings? Yeah, so I guess I don't know when this is going to drop, but uh, follow at AI Wrestling on Instagram and Twitter. Um, we have, I believe, I just heard John say today on on the Edit Podcast, we have 18 shows this year in the Cleveland, Akron, Canton area. So this coming Saturday, February 4th, we have Join the Swarm, which is going to be in Akron. Um, I think we have two more Akron dates this year on top of that, and I'm trying to maybe work some Canton dates in there too. But we run the Tadmore Shrine when we run. Great, great venue, great seating, easy parking right off the highway. Um, if you've never been to a pro wrestling show, I implore you to come to AIW first. It is not your granddaddy's pro wrestling, as they would say. It is professional wrestling. It is kind of what the new style of professional wrestling is. It's kind of a little bit of everything for everybody. You're going to have some amazing matches. You're going to have some matches that are going to make you laugh. And then you're going to have some matches that are going to make you go, holy cow, what is going on right now? Uh, usually that's the Josh Bishop match. But fall at AI Wrestling, like I said, I know we have two more dates in Akron this year on top of this February date. I know April 22nd is our next date. Um, and then I'm trying to, like I said, hopefully maybe work with some venues in the area. Uh, we just got a new low, like, short ring. So hopefully maybe I can find some breweries in the area that would be willing to partner with us and do some shows. Um, my social media handles are at DGreenyBC. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, go ahead and follow me there. I try to kind of keep up. Uh, my, you know, with where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing, I'm all around the, uh, honestly, at this point, all around the world. And I kind of try to like, let everybody know where I'm going to be and what I'll be doing as well. Sometimes I just have sports MMA takes on my Twitter that you might agree with. You might think are terrible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll occasionally mention some 90s pop culture that catches my eye. Like I think two of my most popular tweets of all time are of RCA blues tweet and a boy meets world tweet. So go, go figure. And then uh, just if, if you're in the Canton area, come on down and, and give East Coast Martial Arts a try. I'm sure Chad gave the the very hard sell when he was on here. But, you know, it, it's a big family. Uh, Chad is one of the best instructors you're ever going to see. And I, I say that not just because he's been my instructor for the last 13 years, but because he's been my friend for the last 13 years. And I see the individual amount of passion that he puts into not only the jiu-jitsu uh, crowd at the gym, but just the martial arts crowd in the gym in general. Chad's a lifelong martial artist, you know, from the days of watching Bruce Lee movies when he was a kid to where he is now. And he cares about everybody that comes in that gym entirely more than he probably needs to. Um, and the moment you step through that door, your family and he treats you as such. So if you're in the area, I, I don't know what our free trial system is right now, but, you know, come on in hit him up on social media. I think it's at team East coast BJJ. And I just think it's at team East coast would probably be the normal handle. Um, you know, just come on in and give it a try. Uh, because I guarantee you, and I will say this about anything when it comes to jiu-jitsu pro wrestling, the hardest thing is just getting your foot in the door and starting the moment you start, you're going to feel way better. And you're going to be like, Holy cow. I was scared to do this. I can't believe it. I've got this crazy mm -hmm. cool friend group. Now we're going to do all kinds of cool, cool stuff together. 
yeah, you heard the man. Follow him himself on social media. Follow Team East Coast on social media as well as AIW and check out their local events. I sure hope to make my my trip out to those events as well. Thank you, Dominic, for joining me on Forge in Ohio. It was a pleasure having the opportunity to talk to you and pick your brain about a sport that we're both passionate about in professional wrestling. Before I let you go, I always end these conversations with a good old OHIO chant. So OH IO. Thanks, Dominic. Thanks again for the time and coming on the podcast. Keep doing what you're doing, and I look forward to seeing where this wild sport takes you. No problem. Thanks, Jake. That was Dominic Garini, a BJJ practitioner at East Coast Martial Arts turned ruthless professional wrestler. We talked about all of his credentialed opponents so far in his career, and if you know the slightest thing about pro wrestling, then you know that this man already has an incredible resume. I can't wait to see what's in store for Dominic and Violence is Forever in the future. Don't forget to follow the relatively new Instagram account for the podcast at Forged in Ohio and support the show in other ways as well by subscribing, downloading, and sharing all episodes. I've been your host, Jake Murren, and this was Forged in Ohio.